Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Foss about her new book, On Our Own Terms, Development and Indigeneity in Cold War Guatemala. This book was published by University of North Carolina Press in 2022. Sarah Foss is Assistant Professor of History at Oklahoma State University. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rachel, very much for having me and for the opportunity to join you this morning. We're so glad you're here. Could you begin by telling us how you came to this project? Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, I first got interested in Central American history actually in high school. Uh, I had the opportunity to take a class on American foreign relations and uh, the, the teacher covered quite a bit of Central American U.S. relations during that class. And so I found those to be, you know, really interesting, also really horrific. Um, and so it really, you know, kind of sparked this intellectual curiosity in Central America. Um, during undergrad, I actually studied international relations. And so I did a lot more with political science classes. And through this kind of in studying international development and global governance, one thing that I was always, um, I guess, just really unsatisfied with were was what I saw was the, the inability of kind of these macro level theories to really explain local histories. Um, and I also, you know, was constantly probably to the annoyment of my professors, you know, always asking, well, what about like local people? You know, what about the differences in various cultures? What about these countries that are extremely diverse? Uh, how does this one size fit all model, you know, apply there? Uh, and so I think kind of unbeknownst to me, I was asking a lot of questions that I would end up going on to research with this book. Um, I did a uh, interdisciplinary master's program at Vanderbilt through their Center for Latin American Studies. And it was really there that I decided, yes, I wanted to do doctoral research. Yes, I wanted to study history. I had the opportunity to do archival research for the first time, and I just really loved it. Um, and I also, through that program, my funding was through a, a Floss Fellowship to study Quiche Maya. And so it was actually through a language class that I learned a lot about indigenous histories of Guatemala, Guatemalan history. I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala for the first time, um, you know, and so kind of through that experience, decided to pursue this PhD in history, uh, specifically looking at Guatemalan history, uh, and then kind of going back to those early intellectual interests, you know, decided I kind of wanted to study development history uh, and try as best I could to really center the perspectives and the voices of the intended recipients of these projects, which in rural Guatemala, the large majority were indigenous. Uh, and I think, a, you know, a lot of that 
influence, I think, is also due from the training that I had. I did my PhD at Indiana University, and so I was working with folks like Jeff Gould and Peter Gordino, uh, Danny James, Arlene Diaz. You know, through all their work, they are interested in the way that non-elite people engaged with kind of major political moments um, in their respective contexts. So, yeah, that's kind of, you know, how I got interested in this project, Um, you know, hit the ground running. Uh, in 2012 with preliminary dissertation research, very quickly came to realize that the institute I thought I would really center uh, in, in the entire dissertation, the Instituto Indigenista, that the archive had been destroyed in the 1980s. Uh, you know, and so learning that um, forced me to kind of actually broaden my project to look at community development projects beyond those that the Instituto Indigenista did. It also, you know, and broadening then the time frame for the project also kind of expanded uh, in ways that I didn't necessarily anticipate when I started the project. But ultimately, I'm really glad that they did because I think it has allowed me to trace kind of this longer arc of development history across kind of from the mid to the end of the 20th century um, in Guatemala. So yeah, that's, that's, you know, kind of how I fell into the project. And and I think like any, especially first major projects, it changed a lot along the way. Uh, it was really guided a lot by the people that I met. Uh, you know, I'm extremely indebted to many, many different people, both inside and outside of the Guatemalan Academy for their help and their assistance and helping me to kind of piece together this story and get access to local records and find people who would be willing to be interviewed. Um, but it's really, you know, I hope that through this book, I've been able to really tell their story. So um, thank you for sharing your journey with us. And I wanted to um, ask about some of the concepts that you engage in your book that are related to indigeneity and governance. Could you maybe just explain one or two of those to us? Because maybe it'll help us understand how you're working with all the different materials you use in the book. Sure. Thank you. Um, So there's a couple of different frameworks, I guess, that I use in this project. Um, One is, you know, just kind of in how I conceptualize of development itself. And I really follow the work by Daniel Emmerwar um, and Nick Colather in this, you know, so just kind of defining development really broadly as the increase in social capacity or, you know, where one kind of socially constructed entity entity is trying to change another. Um, And when we contextualize this historically kind of in the mid 20th century, particularly in the West, modernization is one approach to development. It's one that at least in the U.S., um, particularly uh, in the U.S. government, it becomes, I don't want to say it becomes hegemonic because it's certainly always contested, but it becomes very much kind of the model that the U.S. government tries to implement, not only at home, but also abroad. And so that's a very, you know, rooted in anti-communism um, and in a capitalist logic is very top down and stagist with this idea that societies pass through these different stages, you know, kind of in routes to this quote unquote fully developed place. Um, and so that's, you know, thinking about modernization alongside other models of development. Uh, Emmerwar calls these communitarian forms of development in his book. I found that to be really useful, um, kind of tying to that, you know, Sarah Hines's concept of vernacular modernities um, or the way that, you know, modernity was defined differently by different people, um, you know, and so that I think also kind of helps in looking at histories of development, you know, what is, how are people defining modernity? And so in relation to that, 
how does their path to that modernity, what does that look like? Um, you know, just help me to try to kind of conceptualize these different meanings of development and kind of put some, some words and some theoretical frameworks to that. Um, a second framework that was really useful for me in thinking through this was racialization. And so following kind of Laura Gokowitz's work, thinking about racialization, not just as a cultural or social process, but one that was also directly linked to political and economic power. Uh, and so I thought a lot about how development projects were racialized, um, how development in Guatemala was used at you know, on the one hand to reinforce and reinscribe racialized notions of indigeneity, but also how indigenous peoples use development to challenge these very racialized discourses and and to try to project different understandings of indigeneity and what it meant to be a modern indigenous citizen. And so, um, you know, in thinking about that, I, I used and I referenced quite a bit um, Charles Hale's concept of the permitted Indian, um, and then you know added kind of the counterpart, the prohibited Indian to this. And I argued that you know starting with um, or starting in the revolution in Guatemala in the 1940s, you know the state was really trying to kind of create this construct of the modern indigenous citizen, which aligns you know very much I think with what what Charles Hale is positioning it kind of as this permitted Indian or a person. Um, you know, who is behaving in ways that the state deems are appropriate behaviors for an indigenous person, uh, you know, and so therefore not trying to alter the status quo. Um, and so kind of using that concept to think about the ways in which development was trying, how the state through development was trying to create, you know, versions of this quote unquote permitted Indian at various junctures in Guatemalan history uh, and how through people's rejection or um, appropriation of these projects, how they're behaving in ways that aligned more with what the state considered to be prohibited. Um, And I look at some of the different consequences that those types of behaviors had at various moments uh, in Guatemalan history. So yeah, I think kind of those those two um, kind of broad, I guess, theoretical frameworks, you know, were really useful for me in, in trying to take various case studies and put them in conversation with one another and to try to trace these broader uh, historical patterns across 20th century Guatemalan history. So let's actually look sort of moving over time um, at the first chapter in your book. So you begin at a moment of democratic opening. um, That's an important moment in Guatemalan history, and it's one that we know isn't going to last. Can you tell us about what the relationship between the Guatemalan state and the indigenous population was, what it was like in this era. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, you know, with the with the revolution in 1944, uh, there's a new constitution that's written, and this constitution extends voting rights uh, to some indigenous men in ways that hadn't existed before. Um, and with this, then, you know, I looked at some of the different congressional debates around this decision, um, and there's certainly a very, you know, racist fear on the on the part of some congressmen, you know, fearing that um, people are going to n- not understand what voting privileges entail, or they're not going to vote in the right way, or that this is just going to uh, create chaos in Guatemala. Um, but many others, you know, kind of take more of this tutelary approach. Um, 
which is still very problematic in a lot of ways, you know, but are saying uh, that that for Guatemala to be an, a modern nation, more people need to, to be enfranchised. And so, uh, but they need to be trained and they need to be taught how to use that right responsibly. Uh, and so there's literacy campaigns uh, are one way that the Guatemalan state tries to not only teach people how to read, but also teaches them how to be kind of this version of the modern in- indigenous citizen that the state is wishing to see. Um, and so one chapter of the book, you know, uses um, literacy tracks or these cartillas and, and analyzes both the words in the cartillas, but also, and I think probably more importantly, given that most of the readers of these would have not been literate or would have had fairly low literacy skills in Spanish at that point, you know, the images that are in these cartillas. Um, they're depicting this man who they call Juan Chapin uh, and his wife Juana, and they have two children, you know, and these are recurring characters in several of the cartillas from this era. And Juan Chapin and his wife, you know, through these images are demonstrating um, kind of the version of, of modern indigenous citizenship that the state is wishing um, its very diverse indigenous population to adopt. Um, so that's kind of one such program. Um, I also, you know, look in depth at the creation of the Instituto Indigenista, uh, which is part of kind of this hemispheric turn in the 1930s and 1940s in Latin America towards using indigenismo as a tool of governance um, and really in framing, you know, the quote unquote problems facing indigenous peoples as socioeconomic in nature um, and thus uh, from the state's perspective solvable through development projects. And so uh, the Instituto Indigenista in Guatemala is no exception. It also takes this very developmentalist focus towards its different programming that it does during the revolutionary period. Um, And it also generates quite a bit of knowledge about indigenous communities. So the Instituto Indigenista hires indigenous school teachers as ethnographers and gives them, you know, kind of a crash course in ethnographic methods and then sends them out to different communities to do these surveys um, and then use the surveys to write monographs about different communities. Uh, And the goal of these monographs is to be used primarily in teacher training, in rural teacher training. you know, but in these monographs, we also kind of see glimpses where the different ethnographers are trying to challenge racialized stereotypes um, about indigenous people. You know, so in one that I, I analyze uh, in depth about um, San, Bar- San Bartolomé Las Milpas, the ethnographers, you know, point to things like people not wearing shoes or people... Um, not having beds or different types of furniture in their homes. And they say, this isn't because they don't want to, it's because they don't have the financial resources for these things, you know, so they're, um, you know, pushing back against this idea that indigenous people were not capable of modernity and, and, and says, no, it's actually, you know, this is tied, it's rooted in, in material inequality. Um, they also, you know, make the point of saying people are are cultivating a wide variety of fruits and vegetables and different types of food, kind of debunking this idea that indigenous diets were only based on corn and beans and were thus unhealthy. Uh, and they say, no, no, people are, are cultivating a quite a bit more variety of food, but uh, a lot of this they're being forced to sell um, because, you know, again, they need the, the, the monetary resources. So, um, you know, these are moments in which this state institution uh, that is tasked with creating knowledge about indigenous communities to make them theoretically more governable 
is also kind of thwarting that a little bit and using opportunities like these to call out the state um, for for inadequately addressing land tenure issues or inadequately addressing uh, material realities in the countryside. Um, and then, you know, one of my, I guess, favorite chapters from kind of the revolutionary era was, is the chapter that looks at the agrarian reform and this nutrition project um, that uh, INCAP, which is a, a Central American Nutrition Institute, does kind of in tandem with the Instituto Indigenista and the community. Um, and in this chapter, and looking at both agrarian reform records and then um, anthropologist field notes from Magdalena Milpas Altas, which is a Cochicel community where, where this nutrition project was done, um, I really, you know, try to read these sources and look, one, at how people are utilizing development discourse to pursue sometimes very different ends. Um, You know, so to give an example, during the agrarian reform, there's um, cases where claimants uh, for land would frame their demands in terms of development. They would say, you know, we need land to grow cereal grains to help our children not starve. Um, You know, and so they would, again, kind of play up on this racialized stereotype about indigenous diets and say, if only we had more land, uh, we would diversify our diets and then we wouldn't, you know, our children wouldn't be as hungry. Um, And uh, the landowner, uh, it was one of the Herrera brothers, who's one of the largest and wealthiest landowners in Guatemala at the time, uh, counters this claim and says, well, this finca is being used to grow corn and beans, and these are staples you know, for the nation. And so if my land is expropriated, it will no longer be used you know, kind of in these quote unquote productive ways um, to the detriment of the nation. And so we see kind of both the claimants and then um, Herrera using development discourse to frame their demands. Um, The campesinos from Santa Maria de Jesus end up getting this land, but then it's returned like most uh, expropriated land. It's returned after the 1954 counter-revolutionary coup. Um, And then in the case of the Nutrition Project, you know, this is a community that's very politically divided between those who support Arbenz and those who do not. and it's, you know, a really interesting case in where this development project becomes really enmeshed in these local political divisions, uh, you know, with the development practitioners being called communist by those who are supportive of, uh, of, of Idigaras Fuentes, who is the opposition candidate to Arbenz. Uh, they view that this, you know, hen house project is a communist project because Arbenz supports it and therefore, you know, as Catholics and as anti-communist people, they can't have anything to do with it. And so they refuse to, to participate, um, you know, and, and so it's just, it's a really interesting case study of how, you know, this effort at a development and position, you know, through these different nutrition projects, um, responses to that are really based on this much longer history within the community, much longer histories that even go back before the revolution of different political divisions, um, of ethnic divisions within the community. Uh, And, you know, it's really kind of at least the initial failure of the anthropologists and the development experts who are operating in Magdalena to understand where the context in which they're working, you know, it really, it leads to the failure of this project, Um, you know, and it really shapes the way that people respond to it and accept aspects of it that they want, but fully reject others that don't fit kind of within um, their vision of the future that they want for their community. So um, I guess, you know, to kind of summarize the revolutionary era's development efforts in indigenous, uh, in the indigenous countryside, 
yes, it's they're very high modernist. Um, in many ways, they I call them integrationists instead of assimilationists because um, these projects are not necessarily wanting to erase indigeneity, but they're wanting to kind of create um, a certain version of you know state sanctioned indigeneity. You know, so this idea of the permitted indigenous um, citizen. So yes, it's very high modernist. So we should very much understand these as attempts at social engineering. Um, they're very paternalistic. Uh, and, and that sometimes I think is a generous uh, label to use for some of these projects. Um, but they're also relatively decentralized. Um, these projects allow for individuals uh, to reject various aspects uh, of development or appropriate various aspects of development, define it in ways that they and their community want um, without considerable fear of violent consequences uh, and without considerable fear of like state sanctioned retaliation. Um, You know, so it's a much more you know, democratic and organic form of development that occurs during the re- revolution as opposed to what's going to come after the revolution. Um, <clears throat> I think this really underscores an important point in your book that the development projects, as they were designed by really high level officials, they don't always or maybe never get implemented exactly how those people in power had envisioned. Um, and I was wondering if you could say something about the ways that in, in, in addition to um, the targets of development projects actually changing what they looked like on the ground, how lower level state employees and these researchers, how they had the opportunity to shape development to what their vision of it was. Yeah, thank you for that question. That's a really uh, important part of this project, too, because um you know, the local staff often weren't members of the community and they often weren't indigenous. Um, And I think that their stories are also overlooked and are also really important to this history as, you know, as I really wanted to study development as kind of this multi-layered process. Uh, And so a lot of the local staff you know, are people who have some training, sometimes they're anthropologists. Um, other times, one one man that I interviewed quite extensively, um, Don Francisco Rodriguez Ruinette, was one of the first ethnographers that, the, and he's not indigenous, he's Latino, but he's from Guatemala City. Um, he essentially was hired at the Instituto Indigenista because of, of a familial connection he had to uh, Manuel Galich, who became the Minister of Education during the Revelo presidency. So he has, you know, no training in ethnography and anthropology and history, none of it. Yet he gets this job and he ends up, you know, dedicating his entire career to this line of work. Um, and, you know, through, so through doing a series of oral history interviews with him, as well as with Doña Elida Esther Cabrera, uh, who is a woman from Santiago Atitlan. Um, she's a Latina woman, but she speaks Zutuhil fluently. And so she was actually hired as the uh, Instituto Adigenista's first, I believe, only female ethnographer in the 1950s. Um, and so both of them, you know, worked alongside uh, various um their, their co-workers, many of whom were, were indigenous school teachers from around Guatemala and did a lot of these community surveys and projects. Um, and so through interviewing them, you know, multiple times, I spent hours with each of them. They were both 94 at the time that I talked to them. And they were the only, the two, the only two living um, ethnographers from the Instituto Indigenista that I located. They, you know, it really kind of 
complicated, I guess, my understanding or my um, my framing of the Instituto Indigenista, you know, as this, you know, high modernist project that was trying to, you know, change indigenous peoples against their will. Um, because when in talking to them, you know, they would talk about the relationships that they formed with people. And, and Doña Elida would tell me about how people she had met in the 50s continued to send her, you know, Christmas cards well into the 80s. Um, you know, how she maintained some of these connections that she had built uh, during the time of her field work. Uh, Don Francisco similarly had, you know, countless stories about the time that he had spent in the countryside. And um, he actually still had some of his old field notes that he allowed me to use. And what was really interesting in both talking to them and then also looking at these field notes was um, just the ways in which they really prioritized and respected um, the autonomy of communities where they worked and the authority um, of community leadership. You know, so every time they went to a community, they, they presented their credentials and they asked for permission to work there. Um, and there was times where that wasn't granted. And so they left. Um, they also, you know, talked about Don Francisco in particular, you know, I talked to him quite extensively about this project. It was kind of the last major project that the Instituto Indigenista did, which was this integrative community development project in the town of Taktik. Um, and it lasted about a year before the government shut it down. Uh, and, and Don Francisco, you know, would talk about like, yeah, so we, you know, there helps um, set up a health center and we had, you know, free injections and different types of um, antiparasite medicine, you know, and different types of things available. And we would help people, you know, get ambulances to get to Coban if they needed hospital attention, uh, you know, but none of it was forced on the community. It was, it was optional. And it, you know, I would kind of ask, well, like, what about other forms of medicine? Oh yeah, like that still existed too. You know, if, if people People wanted to, um, you know, visit the Akhir or the the spiritual leaders, or if they wanted to, um, you know, use different types of natural medicine. That that was that was acceptable. Um, you know, that from his perspective, at least, the Instituto Indigenista's health clinic wasn't there to replace. Um, you know, existing healthcare options that Tacticanios had. Uh, similarly with education, you know, he talked about helping to build schools, but they built schools at the request of communities. And there's municipal records that verify, you know, this interpretation uh, and this memory that Don Francisco had, you know, where communities are asking for schools for their children. And so, you know, the Institute of Indigenista would provide a lot of the materials and kind of finance the projects and then would collaborate with the community to organize the labor for it. So it really, you know, kind of struck me that, you know, these local level staff really operated as intermediaries um, between communities and the state. You know, they helped to connect people with resources that communities otherwise may not have had access to. Um, sometimes they're able to help connect them to resources coming from international organizations as well. So these weren't all just Guatemalan state resources, but um, sometimes from different like non-governmental or philanthropic organizations as well. Um, you know, and I think that through their efforts, they were sometimes able to mitigate, um, sometimes not, but sometimes able to mitigate some of the misunderstandings or um, the, I guess, inappropriate uses of development at the local level. Um, you know, but this was only when kind of these were relationships of respect and ones that, you know, work to really center intended beneficiaries as the central protagonists in the projects. So let's move forward to that moment that we've alluded to earlier when 
this democratic opening uh, closes and there's a coup d'etat. Can you sketch out what that moment was in Guatemalan history and then talk to us about how it affected development projects in a place you've already mentioned, Taktik, and I think it's a place you know well, so maybe we could hear more about that too. Sure. Um, Yeah, so in, in 1954, there was a coup in Guatemala that overthrew um, the Arbenz government, which was a democratically elected government, and installed a counter-revolution with um, Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas, you know, in charge. Um, and with this, with this coup was also the undoing of a lot of the development initiatives from the revolutionary era. So the agrarian reform, I think, is. Um, you know, the clearest example of this, the counter-revolutionary government uh, immediately begins to reconsider the different cases where land had been expropriated. And so people who had lost their land through expropriation, a lot of these landowners were able to file paperwork now with the counter-revolutionary government's um, agrarian department to reclaim their land. And um, I looked at all the records from the Department of Sacatepecas. And and the interesting thing about these files is the files are based on each finca. And so each file will have... uh, the paperwork from, you know, pre-coup and post-coup. And so you're really, uh, in some cases, really able to trace, you know, what happened during the revolution and then what happened in the counter-revolution. Sometimes it took years, you know, into the 1957-58 for these cases to finally be resolved. And this is because campesinos didn't just submit and say, okay, you can have the land back. You know, they they tried to fight this, uh, you know, and and did so knowing that this could land them in prison or worse. but I think in every single case that I looked at in Sacatepecas, eventually uh, campesinos were forced to relinquish the land that they had been given. So, you know, kind of restoring the very unequal land tenure patterns in Guatemala, um, you know, was kind of a big part of some of the very initial development efforts that the counter-revolutionary government did. Um, the U.S. government, you know, looks at Guatemala uh, as this really important laboratory. You know, the, US, the CIA had helped to sponsor the coup um, that overthrew the revolutionary government. And so from the U.S. government's perspective, it was critical that Guatemala stabilize and stabilize quickly politically and also, you know, kind of become the showcase of democracy. Um, and they realized, the U.S. government realized that this was only going to happen if material conditions got better for the majority of Guatemalans. And so once again, development um, is kind of a key solution. And they increasingly turn to community development as the model for this um, and kind of this idea of self-help projects, you know, so the idea that uh, communities want to see changes, they just need a little bit of, of quote unquote help along the way. Uh, and, and really think of this mainly as giving a little bit of economic assistance. And so community development becomes kind of a counterinsurgency tool on the cheap, if you will, at least from the perspective of the U.S. and the Guatemalan government. And so kind of in the 1950s, um, there's these different studies that are done, different kind of five-year development plans that, that the Guatemalan government does at the push of the U.S. government so that Guatemala can receive uh, different types of development aid through loans and, and things of that nature. Um, and in these plans, you know, the rural sector is a priority. Um, the rural sector, particularly in uh, agriculture, and then as well as community development, these are kind of 
twin pillars of the state's rural development plan in the 1950s. Um, moving into the 1960s, uh, and this is you know also happening in Tactique, which I'll kind of zoom in here in a minute. In the 1960s, um, after the 1963 military coup, um, the military state almost immediately creates what's called the program of national community development. And so this is a state-driven project to do community development in various places. It starts in Chimaltenango. It pretty quickly expands into the east where there's ongoing um, insurgency. And then it moves um, into places that the state believes are ripe for insurgency. And, and Alta Verapaz um, is one such department in Guatemala that the state believes you know, has the potential to be revolutionary. And so Taktik uh, is a community that's right off the main highway. Um, it's just south of Coban. It's in Alta Verapaz. And um, it's a community where both the Instituto Indigenista did its one and only community development project. Um, and it's also a place where this Programa de Desarrollo de la Comunidad, also DESCOM, I call it for short, also implemented a community development project. Um, and so I had the opportunity to spend... Um, excuse me, quite a bit of time in Tactique, um, largely due to a, a friend I knew from grad school, Tatiana Pazlemus, is um, a Guatemalan anthropologist and was from, her family is from Tactique. And so, you know, she initially invited me just to go for the feria. And um, through my research, I kept coming across Tactique in the records, uh, you know, and kind of talked to her about like, hey, what, how would you feel about, you know, me using Tactique as, as a case study in my book? And she was like, that'd be wonderful. Like, I can help you. And so I'm really, really grateful um, to Tatiana for some the connections in her family um, for some of the connections that they helped me make locally in Tactique to make this research possible. Um, but yeah, so I studied the the Proyecto de Mejoramiento de Tactique or PMEET, which was the one that the Instituto Indigenista did. Um, and I, I kind of talked about that a little bit, you know, in discussing Don Francisco's work. But, you know, this is a project that happens technically in the counter-revolution, but it had been planned by the Instituto Indianista prior to the coup. Um, and so I kind of view it as kind of the last holdout, I guess, of revolutionary era development projects because it's this very organic community-driven model Um that allows for tacticanos to, you know, kind of seize the resources and the opportunities that the PMEET is providing to prioritize the projects that it wants in its community. Um, like I mentioned, you know, nothing was forced upon the community. No projects were prerequisites to others. Um, you know, it was really about kind of what the community wanted. Uh, and it kind of is mysteriously closed down by the government about a year into it. Um, I tried to look in congressional records to see if that was something that was discussed and the date that the PMEET was closed was actually when Congress was not in session. So that was a bit of an archival dead end. Um, newspaper records talked about it a little bit and cited the lack of funding. Um, but kind of ironically, the Ministry of Education, had under which this program was a part of, um, had just received a large grant from the International Bank for Reconstruction Development. So it seems to me unlikely that... Um, that the Ministry of Education did not have funds for development projects such as this, seeing how it had just gotten this large grant. Um, and municipal records from Tactique really, you know, reveal that the community is quite mad about this. Um, they're really angry that a lot of projects are left half finished. Um, 
they're mad because they've invested a lot of time, you know, into building these schools. And now the project's being terminated and the school's half done and there's no more money to finish it. Um, in these records, you know, they refer to the Pimi as, you know, a formula that Guatemala could use um, as a model for the rest of Latin America to follow of, of is a program of great importance, quote unquote, for the community, you know, and so this is really uh, a moment in which we see kind of a local community um, expressing a lot of dissatisfaction that this, this community development program is being taken away from them. Um, The staff members, Don Francisco, and then, you know, and uh, Jaime Bucaro is another uh, uh, Instituto Indigenista ethnographer who worked there. He's, he's since passed away, but he had a lot of writings and published a lot in the newspaper. They both attribute it to the government um, not wanting this type of program. Um, they attribute it to these programs, you know, potentially challenging the status quo and, and upsetting social hierarchies and giving too much power to communities. So the DESCOM then, you know, it's very similar uh, in terms of the style. It's both. It's also based kind of in this idea of integral uh, mejoramiento or like betterment. Um, it's, you know, intended to have both material and psychological dimensions. There's a lot of talk in the development literature of this time about changing, you know, recipient psychologies and helping them realize that they can help themselves. It's very, uh, very paternalistic in that way. And, um, the DESCOM then, you know, structurally is pretty similar. You know, it's a lot of kind of these smaller projects, uh, ag- agriculture, healthcare, education, uh, infrastructure, you know, this trying to put into place this holistic idea of development at the local level. Um, but the DESCOM, at least in theory, uh, is very top down. Um, it's very formulaic. The government, you know, kind of has these plans for how exactly this is going to be implemented. Um, And it's being, importantly, it's being used as a tool of counterinsurgency. You know, it's being uh, implemented in not in places that have requested it, but in places that the, where there's been recent uh, insurgency against the state or where the state fears that insurgency will take root. Uh, You know, and so... I think those are, you know, some really important kind of structural differences between the DESCOM and the PMEET. Um, at the local level, though, in Tactique, once again, kind of going back to local staff as intermediaries, um, we see kind of similar responses. You know, people uh, don't accept all aspects of the project. There's a lot of pushback in particular against some of the healthcare initiatives. Um, and this is likely because another institute was also working in Tactique that was promoting birth control. Um, and so people in Tactique rejected that and tended to reject anything pertaining to their bodies that, um, that DESCOM was trying to do. Um, other projects like piped water projects were quite successful because these are ones that communities actually wanted. Uh, school buildings were also quite successful. These are things that communities requested. And, and once again, municipal records demonstrate what projects they requested. And those are the ones that actually materialized, whereas the ones that the DESCOM tried to impose, uh, you know, such as agricultural diversification or implementation of fertilizers or hybrid seeds often met more resistance. Um, and, you know, oral history has kind of showed me it's not because people weren't willing to change their cultivation practices. It's because they didn't have enough land, uh, you know, and so the DESCOM did nothing, you know, to address kind of these underlying structural conditions like access to land. Um, you know, and so I think 
once again, we see kind of the ways that Tacticanos navigated the impositions that the DESCOM was presenting. Um, we see the way that DESCOM staff, you know, didn't force projects. They, they tried to implement, you know, the model that the state mandated, but they didn't force it in any way. Um, you know, we see, you know, the way that the counterinsurgency state's development programs were trying to continue to solidify this notion of permitted and expected behaviors of Guatemalan indigenous citizens. But at the same time, it also unintentionally provided spaces and opportunities and tactique for people to contest those racialized norms and express alternative ideas about development and about indigeneity. So thinking about the era of the Civil War, we might imagine that chaos and violence would make development something that's irrelevant or simply impossible, but it doesn't seem that that's what happens. Um, so knowing that development ended up being kind of a tool both for state-led repression and also for grassroots resistance, I wonder, did it work better for one of those causes? Can you tell us a little more about the Civil War era? Yeah, so uh, during the Civil War era, you know, this is when to reject state development efforts or to try to revise them in some way uh, to undermine kind of the state plans for a place, uh, for the people of that place, it became increasingly dangerous to do so. Um, you know, and, and the case study that I use, you know, to examine this is the case of the Marinol uh, sponsored colonization project in the Ishkan jungle, in the Ishkan jungle, which was the Ishkan Grande project. Um, this began in the late 1960s, and it was state sanctioned. It was part of um, the state's uh, agrarian reforms of the 1960s. Guatemala actually had another um, agrarian reform in the 1960s that. Um, was, you know, intended to redistribute, it's much, I mean, it's not radical really at all. <laughs> so it's, it's not really comparable at all to what, what happened in the 50s. But um, the idea is that it would take unused, quote, unquote, unused uh, land and often state land um, and redistribute this in the form of private property to individuals. And so Mary Knoll works with the state um, and agrees to purchase a lot of this land and then slowly, you know, survey it and title it, um, you know, and then give it to individuals or sell it, I guess, to individuals. Uh, and so it's a, it's a church, you know, Mary Knoll, um, state project, a sanctioned project begins in the late 1960s. And, uh, the colonists then are indigenous peoples from the departments of Huehuetenango, um, a few from San Marcos, uh, some from Quiche, you know, some from the Western Highlands. So it's, it's people, largely indigenous peoples, but from different Maya nations. Um, so it's a very diverse space. Um, and really quickly it becomes really successful. So they end up establishing a cooperative, which kind of went against, um, some of the state, you know, pro programs, you know, it's, they decide to, to form this cooperative, they actually decide to try to title the land in the name of the cooperative rather than in the name of individual uh, parcel owners. Um, they get involved in export agriculture, but they use um, the cooperative's plane. So the priest of the region is also a pilot. And so he flies goods and supplies in and out of the Ishkan. Um, and they end up being quite successful. And they also continue to pressure the state for the titles because the state doesn't give them 
some titles to this land right away. Um, they're really, really delayed in coming. And so Ishkan residents show up in different government offices in Guatemala City, you know, asking where their titles are. And um, so it starts in the 60s as the state sanctioned project by the early 1970s, the government is referring to the region as a little Cuba, you know, and so this is in the aftermath of the Cuban revolution. And so to call a place, especially for a, an anti-communist military government to refer to a place as a little Cuba, a little Cuba in the jungle, um, that's a really dangerous label for a place to have, uh, you know, it's marking, it and the people who live there as subversive um, and as you know dangerous for the government, and so I argue in this chapter that you know this the state-approved development project um, in just six years went from being you know sanctioned to subversive, and it became a site of racialized violence. Um, in 1975, 14 um, leaders from the cooperative of one of the Ishkan Grande community of Shabal are quote unquote disappeared, um, and they they're never seen again. Again, um, the priest, uh, Father Bill Woods, I call him Guillermo Woods, uh, he dies in 1976 in a very mysterious plane crash that many uh, people think was orchestrated by the military. Um, the military, in the aftermath of Woods' death, occupies the zone. Um, they end up withdrawing briefly uh, when one of the um, guerrilla organizations, the EGP, actually makes some headway in the Ishkan. Um, some residents do get involved with the, with the EGP, but others, you know, do not. Um, you know, so they're also, you know trying to placate the guerrillas at the same time that they're trying not to antagonize the military. Um, so the military withdraws briefly in the late seventies only to return uh, with a horrific vengeance. Um, and the Ishkan becomes, you know, a site of the scorched earth policy with entire villages being burned, people being slaughtered. Um, the truth commissions have identified the Ishkan of, as one of the three regions that were most targeted by the military and, both the both commu- I'm sorry, both Truth Commission reports as well as survivors of this um, of this violence point to this alternative development model as you know one of the key reasons that the state persecuted uh, Ishkan Grande residents. You know, it's precisely because their development model deviated from the state-sanctioned path of modernization in some ways. Um, and this peripheral borderland region, you know, became the center of the state's you know, national security agenda. Um, kind of in the aftermath of the genocidal scorched earth policy period of the war, so in the aftermath of the early 1980s, um, the Guatemalan government implements poles of development and model villages. They base this off of um, U.S. strategy in Vietnam. Uh, and so essentially people who are internally displaced and who are captured by the military, um, you know, are forced to relocate to one of these poles of development. Um, and so the counterinsurgency state is kind of using development and particularly a militarized version of kind of modernization to consolidate a strategic position in the countryside, um, you know, to rebuild the countryside in accordance with its development model, um, you know, and to force the residents in these places to abide by uh, the principles of this model. At the same time, though, um, there are also what are also forming 
and Guatemala are these um, popular communities of resistance or CPRs. Um, these are communities where internally displaced people um, have fled and have formed. And so these are communities in hiding. Um, these are communities that are consistently facing persecution from the military throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s even. Um, and so these are communities that I argue use a more communitarian understanding of development, so following MOR, um, to resist and to survive state violence and to promote a version of development and subsequently a, a version of indigenous citizenship um, that's drastically different, you know, from the version that the state is promoting through the polls of development. So, yeah, I think, you know, development continues to be central um, during the Civil War uh, to people's subjectivities and to the ways that communities are, are trying to imagine their futures um, in the aftermath of violence. It, it continues to be simultaneously used as a tool of counterinsurgency and a tool of repression as well um, as a tool of autonomy and a tool of survival. So in your book's last chapter, um, there's a, a bit of a shift in terms of the types of sources you're using and also the methods you use to analyze them. Can you tell us about why this shift was necessary and then what findings that work ended up yielding for you? Yeah, thank you, Rachel. Um, all right, so most of the book uses, you know, a variety of different types of sources like anthropologist records, and and I try to do um, a decent amount of oral history interviews with developments intended beneficiaries, you know, to try, try to access and, and understand their perspectives. With this chapter, I decided against doing oral histories, particularly with um with people who had experienced this violence uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I felt that, um, you know, myself as an outsider asking people to relive, you know, some of the most traumatic experiences of their life. Um, I, I didn't feel, I didn't feel that that was ethical for me to do, especially because I didn't have any kind of established relationship with uh, communities that had either been CPRs or communities, um, you know, where a lot of this violence had occurred uh, beyond the Ishkan. I did some interviews in the Ishkan, but I focused those more on um, the chapter about the history of Ishkan Grande very intentionally, rather than asking them about what happened after Scorched Earth. Um, people were much we're very happy, you know, honestly, to talk about the, the good, what they called the good years of the colony, you know, before um, the military came in and, and, and slaughtered folks. Um, and, and importantly, Ishkan Grande is, is still there today. So I want to make that really clear that this state efforts at Erasure was not successful. Um, but in terms of, you know, trying to interview people who lived in model villages, um, people who had lived in CPRs, I just, I didn't have the connections to do so. I didn't want to try to form those quickly and, and just do it poorly. I didn't, to me, it didn't feel ethical to try to do that. And so, um, I, but I also didn't want to ignore their perspectives either. And so um, I ended up kind of by kind of happenstance turning to, to photographs um, because I was doing a few interviews with people from the military, uh, retired people from the military who had been involved with the Poles of Development Project. Um, and in the course of one of those interviews, the man said, well, you should really talk to my nephew. You know, he was really involved. He's a civilian, but he was an engineer and an architect. Uh, he's also from, you know, a really wealthy family in Guatemala. And, and, you know, I was told he had really 
both contributed his own finances as well as his time and energy to helping design the poles of development. Um, and so I did interview him. And in the course of that interview, he said, you know, listen, you want to see my photograph album? And I kind of said, you're what? Um, you know, yeah, I, have, I took photographs, you know, to demonstrate, you know, how the village was constructed, you know, in just under 100 days. And so he narrated these albums for me. Um, and I, you know, thought that those were really interesting. He actually allowed me, you know, he gave me permission to use a discussion of these albums in my book. Um, unfortunately, they're they're really fragile. Um, you know, I wasn't able to reproduce the photos um, and include photos from those albums in the book, but I was able to describe them kind of in great detail. Um, and so then I also, you know, to contrast that, because I didn't want this, this chapter to just be about the poles of development, um, you know, I wanted to end also, you know, kind of with another encounter, you know, to that top-down model um, and that top-down model of violence, you know. And so I found uh, at Sirma, which is an archive in Antigua, they had a collection or two different collections of photographs from the CPRs or these communities in resistance. So one of these um, collections was done and then donated to Sirma by Jonathan Moeller, who is a, a documentary photographer and activist um, who's still doing amazing work in Latin America today. Um, at the time in the 1990s, he was working with the National Coordinating Office for Refugees and Displaced uh, People in Guatemala. Um, and so he traveled to the CPRs on multiple times to document their existence. Um, he's actually published a book of these photographs about his experiences um, called Our Cultures, Our Resistance. Uh, so, but his, the archive uh, of these photographs is at Sirma. The other one was um, the Comité Hollandais de la Solidaridad. Um, so the, like the Dutch um, Solidarity Committee and those, those archives from those, you know, those journalists um, and allies who are traveling to the region as well to document the existence of the CPRs and the conditions there. Um, those are also at Sirma. And so I, I had these two different, you know, archives of photographs, one, you know, detailing the construction of various strategic villages or model villages, excuse me, in the, in the poles of development on the one hand, and then the other hand, these photographs depicting life in the CPRs. And so I decided to structure this chapter using the photographs, you know, as kind of the key corpus of primary source material. Um, and then I, you know, relied on different visual culture theories to help me think about one, how to ethically view these photographs. Um, and so this is where Ariela Azulay's work on the citizenry of photography was very useful in thinking about, you know, this ongoing relationship between photographer, photograph subject, but also the viewer, um, you know, and recognizing that this is an ongoing relationship where no one entity holds complete power over another, although it can certainly be extremely imbalanced. So, and, and certainly that's the case, right, with the poles of development. Uh, photographs. Um, I also thought a lot about Kevin Coleman's concept of self-forging and the way that photographs can be a, a means for people to present a version of themselves to the viewer. Uh, you know, and so I think that there's a lot of self as well as collective forging going on um, in these uh, in multiple layers going on in these different images. Um, you know, and then finally, you know, taking uh, Mirzoff's concept of visuality and thinking about how as a viewer, you know, I, I want to try to denaturalize and destabilize the power relationships at play um, and recognize that photograph subjects not only have 
the right to look, which is what Mirzoff argues, but they also had the right to be seen on their own terms. And so that that kind of theoretical framing was particularly useful for me um, in looking at the polls of development albums where people appeared uh, or where people are posing, you know, because um, the only kind of context I had for those albums were what um, what what Pais Maselli told me, you know, his version of, of him taking this photographs. I, I don't have, you know, the perspective of the people in those images other than how they're presenting themselves through these images. Um, you know, and so I, I really tried to use these different images, um, to understand how people were forging their own subjectivities, um, and how they're engaging the viewer in ways that the photographer perhaps didn't anticipate and and can't control, um, and use these, you know, to really understand the uses of development and the meanings of development um, you know, in this, in this wartime moment. So before we let you go, Sarah, um, and thank you so much for walking us through this fascinating book. Would you mind telling us about what you're working on these days? Yeah. Thanks, Rachel. Um, I am at the very, very early stages, uh, of starting a new project about, I'm calling it the Belizean borderlands. I'm sure that will change a bunch in the coming years, but, um, over the course of this research, you know, I kept seeing these references to Belize in, in Guatemalan newspapers. I knew that, you know, there was this longstanding dispute between Guatemala and Belize that goes all the way back to the colonial period. Um, and so I got really interested in that, uh, you know, in that dispute and thought at first, like, oh, I'll do more of a diplomatic history. Um, I had an opportunity to go to, to London and work in the, in the, um, UK National Archives and look because because Belize was um, a British colony until 1981. Uh, and so I was looking at some of the records there um, and, you know, just got really interested in uh, social histories of this, you know, all these ways that chicle workers are being arrested for, for crossing and harvesting chicle on the Guatemalan side or Guatemalan fishermen, you know, are getting arrested um, you know, are saying that they're trying to undermine Belizean sovereignty because they're fishing in territorial waters that are claimed by Belize. Or, um, you know, one of the weirdest examples I found in the archive were these cases where um, the Gurkha troops in Belize, who were stationed in British Honduras or Belize, were having volleyball matches with the Caiviles, which are these, you know, brutal special forces who were stationed in the Paten. This is in the middle of Guatemala's civil war, mind you, they're meeting on the border, uh, this disputed border to play volleyball matches and the colonial officials, you know, are kind of like, well, we can just kind of let this happen. Maybe it's a soft form of diplomacy. Um, yeah. So there was this, you know, kind of story after story like this, that I was finding in the British archives that were really, really fascinating. Um, and so I got really just kind of interested in how people residing along this border, um, you know, have really shaped diplomacy, how they shaped these ongoing decades long negotiations between Guatemala and Great Britain and Belize. Um, you know, so yeah, it's, it's, I still don't have it. It's not super refined yet by any means, but um, I'm looking forward to returning to Guatemala, doing some research for the first time in Belize, um, and continuing to try to understand kind of the social history of the Belizean borderlands. Well, we have that to look forward to then. So today we've been speaking once again with Sarah Foss about her book, On Our Own Terms, Development and Indigeneity in Cold War Guatemala. Thanks so much for being with us, Sarah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the interest in the book and thank you for the conversation this morning.